When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins. Coming up on our show today, we hear from White House senior COVID advisor on the CDC's decision to advise vaccinated people to go maskless. What does this mean for businesses and why now? And Republican senators met with President Joe Biden this week to continue negotiations on the infrastructure bill. How likely is it, though, that something bipartisan can pass? I am here on this happy Friday, along with one of my favorite colleagues, a Bloomberg government congressional reporter, Jack Fitzpatrick. You know it's going to be a good Friday when both of us are in the studio. And we are joined by the always fantastic Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. Jeannie, thank you for being here to break down so much news this week. But I think there's one big story that has everyone literally breathing a little easier If you are fully vaccinated, the CDC says you no longer have to wear a mask in most situations, indoor, outdoor. It's a big, big step back to normal. And our colleague, David Weston, discussed the CDC's decision with White House senior COVID advisor, Andy Slavitt. David asked Andy to explain the science and specifically why now. Here's the sound on that. So this was a decision made by the CDC. which actually the White House learned of only at 9 p.m. the evening before. And what Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, said is she saw three things happening um, which persuaded her. The first is a fairly dramatic drop in cases. You know, we all know about exponential rise in cases. There's also an exponential fall when they fall. Uh, Secondly was that the vaccines, in fact, there was evidence in the real world that they were working not just at preventing illness, but at preventing transmission, which was a piece that I think people suspected but weren't, weren't quite sure of. But there was sufficient data on that, including on, on how they're working against the variants. And third is that vaccines are now available to all Americans 12 and older. So um, when she, she said those three elements are what caused her to make that decision that was announced yesterday, that if you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. So if you are fully vaccinated, I'm happy to say I am. So I'm one of the fortunate ones. Uh, I don't need to worry about it. I'm not going to get infected in all likelihood. But that's only about, I think, 45 percent of the population. If I'm a business and I'm inviting people in, how do I know which people have been vaccinated, which are not? You know, these are decisions that we as businesses, we as individuals, as localities are going to have to make on our own based upon local conditions. And the CDC will provide guidance. But at the end of the day, These are going to be the decisions of businesses. Some businesses 
um, may require proof of entry as, as a business decision that they make. Some uh, decision, businesses may decide that they don't need to do that and they shouldn't do that um, and that they'll trust people. Maybe they'll ask them. So I think those are really going to be back in the hands um, at, the, at this stage of the people most affected. And I think, again, there will be guidance, but, but those decisions are things that I think we feel confident that people with the information will be able to handle the right way. Well, interesting, particularly people who have not been vaccinated. I, I wonder really whether there is a message in here that says, listen, if you're vaccinated, you're fine. If you're not vaccinated, it's sort of your problem because you haven't gotten vaccinated. Is this a subtle or even not so subtle way to say to the unvaccinated, it's time to get vaccinated? It's interesting. I think people may interpret it that way, but I don't think that's what drove the CDC. The CDC really tries to just basically follow the science. And when they were convinced that they could tell people, look, if you've been vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask, they felt that was the, their interest and their job to share that with the American public. I think what that will cause people to do, hopefully, who haven't been vaccinated, is to understand that vaccinations work, the vaccinations are incredibly well tolerated, and that they, if they have questions, they should ask their doctors and consider getting vaccinated. But if they don't get vaccinated, they're not going to be safe from the virus, and that wearing a mask is in their best interests. And it will be hopeful that people will take the vaccine uh, as they become eligible if they're 12 or older. And uh, if they do so, I think it's going to be good for the country and good for them. How confident are we that if you haven't vaccinated, you're OK? We have a situation here in New York with the Yankees. I'm not sure you're a Yankees fan, but, but we got a lot of Yankees right now who've come down with the virus who have been vaccinated. Well, the, the director of the CDC lives in Boston, so I don't <laughs> know if that tells your, your fans anything. But um, Look, I think, what, I think what we learned from that situation, and we did discuss it with, uh, with the CDC, um, is that there were you know, seven people, the reports are, that, that uh, were vaccinated, that have COVID. Um, six of them were asymptomatic. And um, that, uh, in all cases, uh, you know, they ended up being fine. And what that tells us is, yes, there will be cases where people will be vaccinated and have what's called a breakthrough infection. In the vast, vast majority of those cases, they will be asymptomatic, which means they, mean they likely won't know they have it uh, unless they're tested like they're on a sports team. And they will very likely not be infectious. So um, I think, you know, there are always uh, risks in life. These are considered very, very slight risks. And I think people should, be, should be feel comfortable that um, the vaccines do indeed keep them safe. What should we anticipate might come next? Uh, and particularly, let me ask you about flying and also cruise ships, because, I mean, being in a crowded restaurant doesn't feel that much different from being on a crowded airplane or on a cruise ship. Should we expect some loosening of some of those restrictions as well? Well, we will be talking to industry CEOs throughout the day today, and we already have started that. And, you know, they're each, I think, um, going through the calculation right now. And uh, I think the, the CDC will continue to provide guidance as of now. The CDC is still saying, hey, if you're going to go to an airport, if you're going to get an airplane, good to wear a mask. Um, they may update that, that guidance as they learn more. Um, but I, you know, I think for the meantime, we should just all understand that the, the CDC puts out uh, what it knows as it has it. It's got a lot of guidance to update. If I were to travel right now, um, I would certainly be wearing a mask on, on an airplane. Um, I know that feels um, counter to what people are hearing. But I think uh, you know, we're, you know, we're still going step by step. And I think, you know, travel is something that I think is soon to be figured out. The more people that get vaccinated, the, the quicker 
any restriction can come down, I can tell you that. Andy, as you said, the number of cases are coming down fairly dramatically right now in the United States. Sadly, that's not necessarily the case in places overseas. Let's talk about India, a true tragedy on developing there. We've got something like 60 million doses of AstraZeneca. When do we think we might be able to release those, or does it make sense to release those to India, or is India so far out of control it doesn't make any difference? Well, first of all, for Americans who haven't been vaccinated yet, understand what it would be like to be in India right now. Look at a country around the world where people are not taking the vaccine that they desperately want. That, that could be us. That could have been us if it wasn't for a successful vaccination program. So I hope Americans will look around the world and realize why we're so lucky to have plentiful vaccines. Um, we are indeed um, focusing increasingly, as we have been from the start, on global leadership with vaccines and vaccinations. Um, we've done this in a number of ways. We've shared uh, vaccines both bilaterally and through um, vaccine coalitions. Um, we've announced that we are going to, as soon as they're made available, right now we don't have any available from AstraZeneca, but as soon as the FDA clears them, um, we will have um, 60 million doses that we will be able to put overseas. That's 10% of all of the doses we have um, that will be going overseas by the, before the 4th of July. And we're hopeful, we just have to wait for the FDA to decide to tell us that those are safe. Any sense of timing on that? Uh, we don't know. The FDA does its work at whatever. We don't rush safety, I guess, is the, is the bottom line. Uh, so we'll, finally, we'll know when me, they tell us. Finally, let me ask you, uh, you came to be the senior advisor. You'd been in the, in the administration before, Obama administration. You came and you said it was a temporary thing. Is it time to drop the mic and walk off the stage? I mean, you've, have you basically accomplished with this announcement of the CDC what you hope to accomplish? Look, there's never a perfect time to leave, but I do think that um, I do feel great that when I do leave, which will be sometime the beginning of June, that things are in really great hands um, with, the, with the people here, that many difficult things have been accomplished. There's much more work to do, but the people here, uh, I couldn't think of a better set of people to do it than the people that will uh, be here when I'm gone. And when you say there's more work to be done, is that mainly on that 55% of the population or so that have not been vaccinated yet, how to persuade them that they need to get vaccinated? That's a big job. I mean, helping people get the information they need to decide to get vaccinated is a really important job. So is the global uh, idea of making sure that we help vaccinate the globe. So are additional advances in science that are going to come around therapeutics and hopefully around maybe even antivirals. Uh, there will always be things to do. There will always be challenges. Hopefully they will not be as intense for the country's sake as they've been so far. Uh, but if, if they, whatever comes up, I am very confident that no matter the challenge, the team here will be doing a great job on it because uh, that's what I've witnessed since I've been here. That was David Weston speaking with White House senior COVID advisor Andy Slavitt and saying it would be up to businesses to make the call on how they will handle determining whether or not individuals are vaccinated. I mean, right now we are going ahead and seeing a lot of states, a lot of cities go ahead and lift restrictions. Just hearing now that Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland has lifted the mask mandate. But, you know, as this has happened, at this point, only 36% of the population in the U.S. is fully vaccinated. How do you see this playing out? Are most businesses going to say, hey, we're good now, no more masks? Or is there still going to be a lot of hesitation for businesses worried that two vac unvaccinated people will be in their store and one person will catch COVID from another? You know, I was actually going to ask something similar. The one thing that that interview made me really wonder that I think is the, the next big question here is whether this 
creates sort of an unofficial vaccine passport. That's what I want to know, because you'll remember we heard government officials talking about there's not going to be a government-sanctioned vaccine passport. This isn't like getting a driver's license or something along those lines. But when they give this guidance and say it's going to be up to businesses, it's going to be up to states, it's going to be up to individuals to decide how they want to do this, I wonder if this means if I want to go get a drink at a bar, and it's Friday, it's almost six o'clock, um, what do I need to do that? Do I need to show some sort of ID? I think that's the next big question coming up here. Absolutely, and we still have transportation as well, but coming up, we're going to break down Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's big win in the House GOP leadership and what this will mean for moderates in the party. I'm Emily Wilkins, this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins, who's co-hosting with me, and Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Jeannie, I wanted to ask you this before when we were listening to the Andy Slavitt interview, where he left things open and said, you know, businesses are going to have to make decisions about masks, about uh, how to identify, I guess, identify people who have been vaccinated. I, I want to get your take on this, Jeannie. Does this mean... Uh, a, a restaurateur is going to be asking people for their CDC card? Or what does this mean for those business owners who have to decide what to do after yesterday's CDC guidance? It puts them in a difficult position. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, is, is somebody working at a local CVS or in some kind of bar, as you mentioned, going to be trying to check and see if somebody has a card to prove they've been vaccinated? Probably not. So what we're saying is, you know, businesses are going to have to make the hard decision of either requiring a mask or allowing people to say whether they need to be masked or not. But, you know, another part of this is that children under the age of 12 still cannot get vaccinated. So this also puts parents of younger children in a difficult position because they've now got to decide how they're going to approach this. Granted, kids don't tend to get as sick from COVID as elderly people, but it does put parents in a difficult situation. And of course, I, I live in a state, New York, which is still not decided. They're going to follow these guidelines. And Emily just mentioned that Maryland has. So there's also some confusion at the state and local level as you cross state and local lines. Yeah, absolutely. I, Dini, I think you make a really great point there. I know a number of parents that I know, they heard the CDC guidance yesterday and they said, well, okay, what about me? What about my kids? How does that even work? Um, but at this point, it looks like we are getting some news about exactly what route businesses will take. Uh, this is just coming across the terminal headline. Walmart is ditching mask requirements for vaccinated customers and staff. Obviously, huge, huge company all across the country. Uh, definitely big to say that they are dropping that mask mandate at this point. Although, Jeannie, I'm also wondering, you know, as we start seeing uh, these mask requirements lifted, if a lot of people lift them pretty quickly and you don't see individuals uh, or companies rather asking for that proof of vaccination, 
Is this really going to encourage more people to get vaccinated? Or are we just going to wind up with a sizable chunk of the American population who isn't vaccinated now, doesn't see an incentive to do it, and you know, it's, it might still be a potential risk for future variants of COVID? I think we have to wait and see on that point, Emily, because you're, you're right. We don't know if people are going to use this lifting of the mask mandate, if indeed spreads across the country to most businesses and states and localities. Are the unvaccinated going to use this to just say, you know, I I'm good to go the way I am unvaccinated? Or are they going to indeed be, you know, feeling like it's time for them to get vaccinated? You know, we hope that everybody gets vaccinated. But as you mentioned, we've still got a sizable portion of the population that is unvaccinated, vaccine hesitant people. And we don't know what they're going to do. So let me ask one follow up on that. I, I just want to drill down on this. Uh, do you think, Jeannie, that we're taking it as a given now and that policymakers are taking it as a given that coronavirus is with us for some indefinite amount of time? Because this doesn't seem like they're saying, oh, we're almost down to zero. We're going to get rid of this entirely. This seems almost like, OK, it's acceptable to go back to normal, understanding that there are variants going around. Are we taking it as a given that we're just not really going to get rid of the coronavirus entirely? I think that's right. I, I don't think that we are the at least officials feel like we are going to, quote unquote, get rid of it. I think it is here to stay. I, I think that, you know, they want to encourage people to get vaccinated because, of course, the science does tell us. I mean, look at that big study out of Israel. The science tells us that when you are vaccinated, even if you do, as David mentioned in his interview, like some of these Yankees who are vaccinated and, and tested positive, you tend not to get as sick or sick at all. You're asymptomatic. Bill Maher, for instance, announced that he, as vaccinated, has tested positive with no symptoms. So I do think the science is here to tell us that vaccination is the way to go. But to your point, I think this is going to be a way of life. And I think many people feel that wearing masks help them with other things beside COVID, such as the flu outbreak was down this year. So I, I think we are going to see more this masking continue um, to a certain extent, not just because of COVID. Yeah, David had to get in the uh, the Yankees reference, of course. Uh, I want to talk about another New York, almost a, a different state, New York, upstate New York. Uh, today's other big news in politics is Elise Stefanik is the new member of House Republican leadership uh, the, the replacing Liz Cheney. Uh, we've talked about this before, but this, I think, is bigger than Liz Cheney, bigger than Elise Stefanik, bigger than the position of House Republican conference chair. This is a move by Republicans to make sure their leadership is entirely behind President Trump, as Stefanik has been. Uh, real quick, Jeannie, what do you see as that? What's your big takeaway from Elise Stefanik stepping into that position? You know, she was, of course, nominated by another New Yorker, John Katko. And I think we do see the Republican Party saying that they feel that Liz Cheney was too much of a distraction as they move into 2022 from a fundraising perspective and as it pertains to the primary. So I think they are all in now and they feel that this will allow them to pivot to focusing on Joe Biden and the administration in a way they couldn't. So I do think it is it works out that way for them. But I also think Liz Cheney has made a name for herself on this in a way she hadn't prior to this. Right. We'll, we'll, let's keep talking about this. And we're going to get to the January 6th commission. There's going to be a vote coming up on that in just a minute. With Emily Wilkins and Jeannie Shanzano, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
I'm Emily Wilkins, along here with my co-host, Bloomberg Government Congressional Reporter Jack Fitzpatrick, and Bloomberg politi Politics Contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno. Well, we're going to get back to some of the big news that came out of Congress today. New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was voted by her colleagues to become the third-ranking House Republican as Republican Conference Chair. She replaces Liz Cheney in the role, who was booted out earlier this week because of her continued remarks pushing back against uh, former President Trump's inaccurate claims that the 2020 election had widespread fraud. Uh, so it's a big day for Congresswoman Stefanik, but in some sense, it's even a bigger day for former President Trump. Listen in to what Stefanik told reporters after she won the seat. We have the sound. I support President Trump. Uh, voters support President Trump. He is an important voice in our Republican Party, and we look forward to working with him. You know, Jeannie, Trump lost the presidency in 2020. Uh, under him, the House flipped from Republican-held to Democrat-held, and Trump was also blamed for losing the two Senate seats in Georgia in that January runoff. Why are Republicans still with him at this point? It's it's only, you know, there. it's so difficult to wrap your head around when you think that now the top three leaders in the Republican Party in the House all voted not to certify Joe Biden as president. And you, as the clip you just played showed, they are all in beside behind Donald Trump. You know why they are doing this? They believe that Donald Trump holds the key to them winning the House back because, uh, you know, they they are close, but and they have a good shot. But they believe he holds the key to winning the House back and putting Kevin McCarthy and Scalise and Stefanik says she's going to step down, but into leadership in the House in 2022. And they believe he helps them with fundraising. They believe he helps them with primaries. So they believe he's their ticket. But I've got to just say this is a very, very narrow short term strategy. When you think again that all three of these top leaders voted not to certify this election. To me, it's an astounding moment for our democracy. So I, I want to double back, Jeannie, on what you mentioned about money and primaries. And I'm curious, do you, do you really think this is a strategy by Republicans to rally around Trump, or is it responsive to the pressures that they're naturally going to feel? I, I don't know how many Republicans think, oh, yes, Donald Trump is absolutely going to come back and win in 2024. But I do know they have polling that shows he's extremely popular among their primary electorate, and they know what he does does for their uh, for their fundraising. So is this actually a strategic move by Republican leadership or is it responsive to their needs right now? You know, I think it is their view that they are going to be in trouble, if you will, in the primaries in 2022 and potentially not take the House unless they get behind this idea that the election was stolen, that Joe Biden is not the rightful president. I think when you talk to them behind the scenes, as you and Emily do all the time, you know that they believe that the election was fair and that Joe Biden was duly elected, but they believe that their constituents don't accept that idea, at least those that will vote in the primary. But the fascinating thing about it is you look at some of the guests, their own internal polling from the NRCC. This is, a, you know, a big question mark. It's a strategy. We don't know if it's a winning strategy. Come 2022, where will Republican primary voters really continue to hold this view? It's a big question mark. 
Absolutely. And another very interesting thing, you know, Stefanik wasn't the only candidate today. Um, Chip Roy, a Republican from Texas, also threw his hat into the ring. He was never, I think, really expected to win. Uh, he got, I think, about 46 votes overall, so far less than what Stefanik got. But it is interesting if you look at some of the numbers. There are many groups in D.C. They keep scorecards on how members of Congress vote. And if you look at some of the big conservative ones, like the American Conservative Union Foundation, uh, Chip Roy, he gets 95 percent. Liz Cheney gets 78 percent. But Stefanik, she only gets... 44%. And and Jack, I, I wonder a little bit why in this case, Elise Stefanik, why did House Republicans wind up going for someone who has more of a moderate record when in 2022 they're going to need to appeal to the very conservative Republican base? Yeah, well, at least in many cases, a lot of people are concerned about uh, appealing to a conservative base. But what really seems to matter is people's position on Trump. So I don't know if I have a perfect answer to why Elise Stefanik specifically, other than Trump came out in favor of her. But I can tell you, as as much as Chip Roy is a straight-A student on these Republican scorecards, these conservative ideological scorecards, he pushed back as well, not quite as vocally as Liz Cheney, but he pushed back uh, on the votes to overturn uh, the Arizona and Pennsylvania election results. So really, Elise Stefanik was the one aligned with Trump, and that Trump's uh, ideology, even uh, for hardline conservatives, it seems. Yeah, and I was just going to say they also had the Michael Wood loss in the Texas special election. He was the anti-Trumper there. He lost big. And I think it's another sort of reminder to Republicans they could be in that position if they go against Trump. So they're either being quiet or they are just going all in for Trump and now Stefanik. Absolutely. And, you know, from here, I mean, there is that big question about what happens next in 2022. At this point, because of both redistricting and historical precedent, midterms are great for the party that is not in power in the White House. Republicans have a lot of potential to go ahead and to win in 2022. But you have heard this concern about the messaging, about the need to appear in a unified way, a concern that Cheney was sort of breaking up that unity a little bit by continuously responding to Trump. I mean, Jack, you and I cover this stuff all the time in Congress. I mean, how important do lawmakers really value that message and that unified message? Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, Liz Cheney was definitely distracting from what Republicans want to talk about. She wasn't getting a lot of press on policy. It was fighting with Trump. And really, if Republicans don't step on a rake, they can do well in the midterms, partly because it's midterms and partly because of redistricting. So things are looking good as long as they don't make big mistakes. Right. Well, that's this is Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick coming up. Stick around. This is Bloomberg. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins and Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Guys, we talked about the House Republican leadership issues. We talked about Andy Slavitt and the CDC, but so much going on this week in the news and coming up next week. What am I what am I missing? What did we leave out? Jeannie Shanzano, what's on your radar? 
You know, I think on my radar is sort of the aftermath of this colonial pipeline shutdown. We understand the the hacker uh, organization Darkside has said that they are disbanding, but we also understand that these groups come back in other forms, raises significant questions about cryptocurrency and the role of the government, which is my uh, you know personal interest. We've seen this executive order out by Biden, but much more needs to be done. And one question is, since they paid the company $5 million, according to Bloomberg, in cryptocurrency. Is that going to encourage more attacks like this on critical infrastructure around the world? Yeah, that seems like something where one executive order doesn't solve every problem, and we'll see uh, how Congress steps in, if they can step in on a bipartisan basis. What else? Emily, what's on your radar? So as we all know in D.C., it is still Infrastructure Week, or as I am trying to now call it, Infrastructure Summer. I think it has a ring to it. <laughs> I think it should catch on. Uh, but we saw some big meetings this week with President Biden. I uh, sat down on Wednesday with the top Democrat and Republican in both the House and the Senate, and then on Thursday he sat down with six Republican senators just trying to find a way forward, specifically on the infrastructure package, the roads, the bridges, the highways. And look, you know, we talked to Shelley Moore Capito, uh, who's sort of been the lead on the Republican negotiations after this. She said she felt like the meeting went well, like they made a lot of progress. She said negotiations were going to continue to ongoing. Uh, but, you know, you're also seeing House Republicans next week uh, sorry, yeah, House Republicans are going to be introducing their $80 billion infrastructure plan. This is different from that $586 billion that House uh, Republicans in the Senate proposed, uh, but both, of course, are far less than the $2.25 trillion that President Biden put out in his plan. And so it'll be interesting to see what House Republicans want to see, what they might be able to get on board with. Of course, the Senate's really the key because that's the one where they need the 60 votes, um, but definitely trying to, to get a line in the lay of the land. And the other big question that I'm watching for right now, Republicans have laid down this red line where they say that they don't want to do anything that that's going to change their 2017 tax proposal. And that's what Biden has, has targeted with his corporate tax, his capital gains. So I'm going to be seeing if there's any sort of path forward on that proposal. How do they wind up paying for this bill? Yeah, I want to follow up on that. It seems like there's a lot of bipartisanship on infrastructure spending. Uh, a lot of the time you can get a bipartisan deal if you offer money for things both sides like, but how do you pay for it? And does the president continue to insist that it has to be paid for? Jeannie, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Are we going to see just a deficit financed infrastructure bill or or something that relies on some sort of gimmick? Or do you think they actually agree on pay fors ultimately? I think it's going to be very difficult to agree on pay fors. Um, I think in the end, Democrats will go it alone via reconciliation and Republicans will not be happy. I hope I am wrong about that on a Friday afternoon. I don't want to be so negative. But, you know, I just can't get around, a, you know, Mitch McConnell yesterday talking about a red line. Um, I don't think there is much uh, appetite in the Republican caucus in either the House or the Senate to revisit the tax bill. So I think they want to go for pay-fors, and I don't think Democrats, looking at the letters many liberals and, and even moderates sent to Biden yesterday, have a stomach for that. So I think we're going to see Democrats go it alone in the end. But I do think Biden is trying to make a good faith effort to show that he is reaching across the aisle this week and next week.
Jeannie, you make a great point there because there is also pressure on President Biden from Democrats saying, hey, how long are we going to do these negotiations here? There's pressure on Biden to go it alone. I mean, we've heard Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer kind of say, look, these bipartisan discussions are great, but at some point we're going to have to decide how to move forward. And you also heard from House Progressive Caucus Chair uh, Pramila Jayapal, who came out with a tweet this week saying, you know what, Democrats, we have the votes. Why are we going to negotiate down with the Republicans. Let's just give the American people, you know, as big of a package as we possibly can. Yeah. So I noticed that Roger Wicker, one of the Republican senators who was in the meeting uh, with the president, said afterward, and this is something that the president hasn't announced or put in these terms, but Wicker said Biden has made it pretty clear to them he's going to try to work with them on a bipartisan infrastructure package and then use the budget reconciliation process, which allows you to do something partisan to see what else Democrats can do on their own. So we might see kind of a double whammy, whether things go well or not on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I'll be interested to see if Democrats just follow up that success or failure and say, let's see what we can do on our own. You know what's on my radar today and going into next week, uh, and this dovetails with some of the January 6th discussion we had about how House Republican leadership is responding, responding. but we saw a, a, a some news today from House Democrats that they put out a bill to up security, ramp up security at the Capitol. And also we saw a bipartisan agreement that was brokered by Benny Thompson and John Katko, who are the top members on the House uh, Homeland Security Committee, to create this 10-member commission to review what happened January 6th, the riot at the Capitol, and the lead up. I'm really curious how that's going to go, because we didn't really get a wholehearted endorsement from Kevin McCarthy, of all people. Now, they say they have Republican buy-in because CatCo helped negotiate this, but we're going to have to see a vote in the House to create this commission. I'm curious, Jeannie, do you look at this and say, all right, that's that's pretty bipartisan. It sounds like Republicans had a hand in creating this. Or what what are your expectations for a a vote that could happen next week to create this commission? You know, I'm going to be surprised if McCarthy goes along with it if it is restricted to January 6th. I mean, we were talking about the Liz Cheney Cheney, uh, ouster a few minutes ago, and of course, that was a big point of contention between Cheney and Kevin McCarthy. She wanted the January 6th investigation to focus on that. He wanted to expand it to other things like the protests last summer, Black Lives Matter, and other things. So if this is truly focused on January 6th, I would be surprised if McCarthy in particular goes along with it. But I do hope we get this commission, of course, because this was a monumental event in in American history that needs to be investigated by a bipartisan independent commission. Yeah, actually, speaking about you know Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy, I believe Cheney said this afternoon that she thought that if there is this January 6th commission that gets up and running, that they should have McCarthy go ahead and testify in front of that commission, sort of you know talk about little his role. You know, he spoke with the president on that day um, while the rioters were storming into the Capitol. You've heard a couple other lawmakers in Congress sort of speak about what he said about those conversations. So it, that also, I wonder if that's something that's going through his mind right now, whether or not uh, he might wind up in front of this commission if he winds up giving it the go-ahead. 
Yeah, it seems like there are going to be a lot of fights ahead on that issue, regardless of whether they vote to create the commission. You know, it, it says in the outline of this, they need bipartisan support to subpoena anybody. So that's a, a big question. Who do you subpoena, even if this is created? One other thing, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this big in the news this week and, and continuing to be a big story is what is happening uh, in Israel and Gaza. Yesterday, big news on Israel with its uh, land and air attacks on Hamas fighters. I, I am curious how we see the Biden administration respond to this because it's so, so sensitive. We actually have sound from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, if we could tee that up, that that gets to uh, how, how tough this issue is and how difficult it is for the U.S. to figure out exactly how to, uh, to broach this. Let's play the sound on that. Clearly, what's happening on the ground, uh, the loss of life, the loss of uh, children's lives, the loss of families, uh, family members' lives, uh, whether it's Palestinian lives or Israeli lives, is incredibly tragic. It's horrific to watch. Jeannie, what do you what do you think the U.S.'s role in mediation is this? Do you leave this to the U.N.? How involved does the U.S. need to be in trying to cool the temperature down a little bit? Well, I think we heard from the president that he's spoken to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, we have heard the same thing from, from the Secretary of State. They have been, I think, rightly so, more behind the scenes trying to get mediators in. Some of our some of our friends, like from Egypt and others, trying to get them in to negotiate with and mediate this to a peace. But, of course, I think the big question today remains, are we going to see some kind of ground invasion? Most people... People I've spoken with say probably not, that there's very little for Israel to gain by doing that. But of course, we've seen that in the past. And that remains, I think, the biggest question mark right now. Yeah, that's that's going to be a really tough one, as uh, the White House press secretary mentioned. One other thing on my radar before we go, uh, looking ahead to next week, this uh, bill on research and development meant to compete with China, the Endless Frontier Act, supposed to be a vote in the Senate on that. That's another thing to look ahead. Who says Congress uh, doesn't get anything Yeah, done? such a busy week. This has been really something. Thank you again to my co-host, Emily Wilkins, and to Bloomberg Politics contributor, Jeannie Shanzano. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.